Please have your Bibles to John chapter 14, John chapter 14, and over the last two weeks nearly, we've been speaking about hell a lot during our Bible studies and uh, outreach work, and we need to preach about hell because hell is a real place, and yet we don't want to become too focused on hell. The Word of God also speaks about heaven on many occasions, and for those of us which are saved, we are going to be with the Lord forever. And when I say forever, I mean forever. And therefore, we need to get the balance right. If we focus too much on heaven, people lose sight of their sinfulness. And if we focus too much on hell and neglect heaven, people become somewhat overly fearful. So we need to get the balance right. Heaven and hell. But when we speak to unsaved people, the focus has to be primarily on hell to get them saved. I think it was John Wesley who said that if he was able to spend an hour witnessing to an unsaved person, he would spend 50 minutes preaching on the law the holiness of god and the righteousness of god and he would use the law to break man down to bring him to his knees to force him to repent because man is very stubborn and uh, yesterday we spent several hours in charing cross and we estimate around ten thousand people so our banner and that's a great blessing to be able to do that and yet most of the people that we saw yesterday and saw us were completely indifferent probably 90 percent and that's pretty typical for the 21st century but that's nothing to be overly upset about we are living in pretty wicked times as it was in the days of lot as it was in the days of noah so should it be in the days when the son of man returns it was pretty wicked in the beginning and it will become even more wicked between now and the lord's return So let's not lose heart, let's not become too upset or too disillusioned or too disgruntled. It's not us they are rejecting, it's the Lord. That's also found back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. But of course we are flesh and blood, we take things personally. We love the Lord, we love his word. And we want people to be saved and washed in the blood. Because he did something great for us, he saved us, he's made it possible for us to spend two weeks together in central London during the middle of summer to get the word of God out. We came to London with many DVDs and a new banner. But this morning, I want to look at John chapter 14, a great piece of scripture which gets read during funerals, and uh, people like to quote this, even if they're not saved, which, as far as I'm concerned, is somewhat absurd. This piece of scripture, this entire book, known as the Bible, is really only for those that are saved. If you're not saved, this is a closed book to you. But if you're saved, if you're struggling, if you want some peace and joy, take a look, if you will, at verse 1, please. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Profound words. Let not your heart be troubled, don't be disturbed, don't be distressed, don't be depressed. You believe in God, believe also in me. If anybody else was to say that, you'd be shocked. If I was to say that, you'd be shocked. And if you go back through history, you look at people like Buddha, who left his family in search of the light, and yet Jesus Christ left heaven and came to preach the light. You look at Confucius, every so often he would get drunk. Whereas Jesus Christ would say to the people of Israel, which of you convicted me of sin? And they couldn't say a word whatsoever in response to that statement. If you look at Muhammad, he would marry a little girl and have many other women, concubines. In fact, he would even take his son's wife or his adopted son's wife for his own. Joseph Smith was the same. And you think, you think to yourself, these people all say they are religious, holy, something special. In fact, many popes over the years have had homosexual lovers. Some have been paedophiles. Some have been married 
to women, have had children, some being bisexual, some being into bestiality. It's tragic when you look at history. And uh, just two days ago, I went to the British Museum and we look around inside and there were idols left, right and centre. We saw statues, we saw images of just sheer wickedness. And we thought somewhat naively that there'd be artifacts from the Bible, anything from the Bible, but no, nothing whatsoever. Everything but the Bible. And it was somewhat disappointing to realise that our trip was perhaps partly in vain, but not necessarily. We got to see how man has always been. Man has always been very religious. Man has always wanted something more than himself to believe in. Today, people believe in sport. That's the main religion in the UK today, sport. And they follow their football players like the Romans follow their gladiators or the Greco gods before them. But here Jesus Christ is speaking to his apostles and he's about to go to the cross. He's about to experience a very bloody death. And that's why he told them back in John chapter 6 that they'd need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Meaning they'd have to be identified with a very bloody Messiah. Meaning they too may have to die for their Messiah. And that piece of scripture from John chapter 6 went right over their heads. And today Catholics come along and try and use such scriptures to argue that Mass is somehow valid. But John chapter 6, to be picky now, concerns the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to the Jews under the law. And on top of that, he was speaking to the Jews in a synagogue, not a church. There were no Christians present in John chapter 6. But I don't want to deviate too much from John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. That would have been so clear to them that he was referring to deity. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, this is always a great scripture to take people to when you want to explain the deeper things of the Lord to somebody who may be somewhat confused as to the Lord Jesus Christ's nature and again a great scripture to show a Jehovah's Witness for example Philippians 2 verse 5 let this mind be in you which also was in Christ Jesus who being the form of God thought not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross who being in the form of God thought not robbery to be equal with God Jesus Christ is God and that's why I've been saying for several years now that when we sin against God only God himself can forgive us and that's why Jesus Christ has to be God but John 14 verse 2 the Lord continues to expound this briefing to the apostles, and here the apostles represent the church, so these verses are primarily for the church. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. My father's house, you believe in God, believe also in me. The father and I are one. In my father's house, third heaven, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. I'm not lying to you. I come down from heaven to live amongst you all. I've come down from heaven to fulfill the law that I gave your forefathers back in the Old Testament. And on top of that, if you believe on me, I will give you everlasting life. And on top of that, if you're saved, a mansion is reserved for you in heaven. And finally from verse 2, I go to prepare a place for you. Not Michael the archangel, not Gabriel, but I go to prepare a place for you. That again is profound. Three, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's a great scripture for the rapture. I'm going to go and get this place ready for you, and I will come again. And yet, a recent survey suggested that 60% of so-called Christians in America no longer believe in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet here the Lord is telling us, I will come again. He's not lying. He's speaking the truth. And receive you unto myself. First Thessalonians chapter 4. That where I am, there ye may be also. When you get saved, you are in Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus is in you. And that's a great scripture. And part of this message is going to concern eternal security. Or once saved, always saved. And I've been saved for 14 years now. And when I first got once saved, always saved down, it was a great blessing for me. There were times when I couldn't understand it. I think even Martin Luther, during his early years as a Christian, struggled terribly with eternal security until he got this down. And this is referred to as justification by faith, imputation. And yet most Christians that I know don't believe in once saved, always saved. They think you can lose your salvation. And yet the Word of God tells us that Christ went into the Holy of Holies, Hebrews chapter 9, where he received, where he gained, where he secured eternal salvation for us. And that's just what it is, eternal salvation without any end. I will come again and receive you unto myself. Where I am, that's where you're going to be also. That where I am, present tense, that ye may be also. So you get saved, you get baptized in the body of Christ, you start to rule with him in a spiritual sense. And then you get into the flesh. The flesh comes along. The world, the flesh, and the devil. But the flesh is our number one enemy. And it doesn't matter how long you've been saved for, sooner or later, the flesh is going to come at you. Peter fell during the Gospels. He would deny the Lord three times. Peter argued with the Lord in Acts chapter 10. And Peter denied the Lord again in Antioch. Galatians chapter 2. Paul will be told not to go up to Jerusalem, and yet he went up nevertheless. The best of the best stumbled. John the Baptist, when he was detained, would ask his disciples to ask the Lord, Are you the one that we look for, or should we be looking for another one? And the Lord told you that. He stumbled, and yet Christ would turn around and tell the multitude that John was the greatest man that had been born amongst women, up until the kingdom of God, and yet post the kingdom of God, posts. Uh, the Lord's return to heaven. The Apostle Paul was the greatest, in my opinion anyway. And yet Paul would lament over his flesh. What I don't want to do, I do. And what I do, I don't do. Romans 7. I'm not yet perfect. I haven't yet attained to the resurrection of the Lord. Philippians chapter 3. So when you come across people that don't think they have sinned, or think they are somewhat holy, 24-7, the chances are they are either deceived, or they are simply lying to you. But of course, the truth of the matter is, if you're not doing any street work, if you're not speaking to people like we've been doing for the last two weeks now, or nearly two weeks, your faith will never be tested, and you'll just cruise through life without a care in the world. Verse 4, And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Sometimes Thomas gets a bad uh, deal, I suppose, and people assess him. They say, Doubting Thomas, and this and that about Thomas, and yet in John chapter 11, when Lazarus was sick and would go on to die, Thomas would say to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the apostles, let us go up to Bethany and die with the Lord. That shows me that Thomas was a great man. In fact, he was so great that he got to see the Lord Jesus Christ post his ascension, whereas the others got to see him as a group. Thomas saw him on his own. 
And Thomas would put his hands in his palms and touch his feet. And the Lord would say to Thomas, how blessed he was to have seen the risen Christ. And yet those that hadn't seen Christ were equally blessed. Verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That verse is attacked, criticized, and completely disregarded by almost all groups of Christendom. They hate that piece of scripture. If you could take Jesus Christ out of the world, you'd have great unity. The Catholics could easily rub along with the Muslims, who could equally rub along with the Jews, who could equally rub along with the Buddhists, the Confucius, the Stalinists, the Marxists, and all the other groups and isms of the world. But you put Christ into the equation, and you come across this piece of scripture, it all falls apart. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am what I am. No man, no woman, cometh unto the Father but by me. You want to be saved? You need to come to me. You don't want to be saved? Don't come to me. Trust Christ to be saved. Trust anything else to be damned. It's as simple as that. And yet verse 7. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And henceforth ye know me, and have seen him. Thomas, had you known me, you should have known my Father also. Once again picturing the two natures in the believer, the complexity of the believer, the believer's inability to fully comprehend that Christ had taught them for three and a half years, and for many times went right over their heads. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Verse 8, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us a father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Every time you saw Jesus Christ in the first century, you saw the Father. But Jesus Christ is not the Father. The Father is not Jesus Christ. When you saw Jesus Christ in the first century, you saw the fullness of God in a bodily form. Christ came to reflect his Father's nature. Christ is a personification of the Godhead. And you can't really understand that, but you were told to believe that. Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me, what I've just told you, and on top of that, believe that the Father is in me, and that I am in the Father. But on top of that, when we get saved, the triunity of God lives within us. These are great verses to read, and I can spend all day looking at these verses and trying to offer a very simplistic understanding of this piece of scripture. But my overall feelings from these verses, before I move on, will be number one, that Christ is God, which is the most important piece to take from these verses. And number two, that once we are saved, we have a mansion prepared for us in heaven. And I will say this, that it might be possible, and don't quote me now, but it might be possible that those that get saved, those that don't deny themselves, those that live after the flesh may forfeit their mansions. Now they're still with Christ. Wherever he is, they are. He's in them, they're in him. That isn't the issue. Once saved, always saved, without exception. But it may just be, for 1,000 years especially, that those mansions may be um, only applicable, only relevant, only available to those that deny themselves and start to live for the Lord God of the Bible. Please turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Another great scripture to read to people, especially those in the ecumenical movement and those that claim to be saved but don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. Acts chapter 4. Take a look, if you will, at verse 12, please. 
neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And Peter is speaking here. And Peter includes himself in this category. Peter needed to be saved. I need to be saved. You need to be saved. And that's why the, the whole facade, the whole mockery, the whole nonsense of the Catholic Church is so far into scripture. Because they say that when you get baptized as an infant, that starts your salvation. And they call that infused righteousness. And you have to go to Mass every Sunday. And to be a really good Catholic, you need to go to confession every Saturday night or Saturday morning to confess your sins to the priest in order to receive the sacraments the following day. And you have to remain in a state of grace. And if you die outside of a state of grace, according to the Catholic Church, go to hell or perhaps go to purgatory. But more likely you're going to go to hell. But a good Catholic, so-called, still has to be in a state of grace, still has to remain in the system and even after all of that, even after they receive the last rites, they're not guaranteed direct entrance into heaven, like the Muslims aren't. And therefore, the Catholic Church comes along and says, well, we have purgatory, which will purge you, which will clean you up. Even though Hebrews 1 tells us how Christ has already purged us, they say, no, you need to be purged. And therefore, you've got Catholics all over the world since the 4th century, absolutely in fear, terrified about dying, and either going to hell, or more likely going to purgatory. And the Catholic Church say that if you say a Mass for your departed loved one, that will allow them to get out of purgatory. In fact, it wasn't very long ago before Patrick got saved that he was part of an ecumenical march in our town. And the bishop said, if you march from location A to location B, which will take around two and a half hours or thereabouts, you'll get an indulgence of 300 years of purgatory. That was 20 years ago, not 200 years ago. But around 20 years ago or thereabouts, and those individuals marched from location A to location B, and according to their bishop at the time, they had 300 years knocked off their time in purgatory. It's a blasphemy. Neither is there salvation in any other. Out goes Muhammad, out goes Buddha, out goes Mary, out goes Joseph Smith, Charles Taze Russell. For there is none other name under heaven given among men and women whereby we must be saved. Saved from all of our past, present, and future sins. And yet you preach this piece of scripture to people, they will attack you. Just two days ago, we were outside the British Museum, and uh, we just set our banner up, and this collar walked past with his feminist wife, and uh, looked somewhat surprised to see us outside the British Museum. And I gave him a tract, and he turned around and said, I've already received Christ, I love him very much. And I said to him, that's great news, are you born again? I can't take his word that he's saved. He may not be saved. And he said, he said to me, I'm born again. And I said to him, that's great. And he said to me, what is born again? And I told him what born again was. And I said to him, we're saved by faith in Christ alone, without any works whatsoever. No mass, no Mary, no sacraments. And his wife jumped into the equation. His wife got right involved in the discussion. And this coward stood behind his wife, literally. And she gave me a five-minute lecture about how hostile I was, how uh, rude I was. I wasn't aware that I was particularly rude or arrogant. I, I just gave the truth from the scripture. And she told me that we must speak in love, we must do this, we must do that. And it goes back to that chap I spoke to in Croydon last weekend. And I tried to put my case across to her. And she said to me, I'm very upset by your tone of voice, so on and so forth. And then Patrick said to the caller, why is she speaking for you? Can't you speak for yourself? And he gave somewhat of a glib response. And I turned to this collar and I said to him, are you really upset with my tone? 
And he looked a bit surprised that I challenged him. He said, well, yeah, somewhat I am. And she said to me, you're only saying this because he's wearing a collar. And I said to this lady, well, I don't know whether he's a Catholic or a Protestant. He could be a vicar of the C of E, for all I know. It turned out he was a Baptist pastor. Although the way, the way he dressed, you wouldn't have thought so. It was somewhat of a bizarre conversation. And they went off, these two. But this piece of scripture would grate with folks such as that. Because they are ecumenical. They're in the interfaith movement. They all hold hands. And they all work together to make this a better world. And that's why I said to this chap last Saturday in Croydon, are you preaching the gospel to the people of Croydon? Are you calling on sinners to repent? Are you warning them that if they die without Christ, they're going to burn? And he said, no, he wasn't doing that. And he accused me of doing the devil's work. And he was pretty critical, pretty uh, scathing of my presence in town. And I rebuked him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, something I've rarely done before, if ever. And I thought that scripture rebuked me sharply from Titus chapter 1. I told him to clear off. And uh, eventually he left. I thought, good riddance to him. Turn to Romans chapter 8, please. And I'll close in Romans chapter 8. When you get saved, all of your sins are forgiven, washed in the blood. And that's a great thing to be able to rejoice in. We've been here for two weeks now, and I've spoken to many people. And I haven't met many religious people, apart from the priest and the other chap from last Saturday. I've met a lot of atheists and some New Age people. But maybe I'll meet a Muslim today, or maybe I'll meet a Muslim tomorrow or the next day or two. And I know from past conversations with Muslims that they hope to be saved. And yet by their own teachings, not only are they unlikely to earn paradise, but if they do get into paradise, Allah could kick them out of paradise down the line. It's a strange teaching, Islam. But for us that are saved, we have a great scripture here. Romans chapter 8. Take a look, if you will, at verse 35, please. Who shall separate us from love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. He got a picture of pretty much every kind of physical affliction that could come your way. And Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, the man that went to the third heaven, Paul, the man that wrote most of the New Testament, is now getting down to business. Who or what shall separate us from love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, Peril or sword? Question mark. As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Some are going to die. Most of the apostles died for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul here is speaking about one's eternal abode. He's not guaranteeing that when you get saved your life will be rosy. That you just go through life doing your own thing like most people do in Christendom like this collar at the British Museum two days ago, or that apostate pastor in Croydon at the weekend, just rubbing along with the world. And when he's not rubbing along with the world, he's probably playing golf, snooker, or tennis. 37. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Keep your hand in Romans chapter 8 and jump over to Second Corinthians. Most Christians are very worldly. And that's the truth of the matter. And when you meet a worldly Christian, you are meeting someone who has become somewhat of an odour, a bad smell to the Lord. He's bordering on being vomited out to the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 4.18 While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Get your mind, if you can, 
on the eternal things. Yes, you can appreciate certain things of the world, like nature, like exercise, or even foods to some extent, but don't overindulge in such things. For here and now, this is all temporary. One day this is all going to be burnt up and destroyed. But the things which are not seen are eternal. And that's why the word of God says how the just shall live by faith. So back to Romans 8.37. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors for him that loved us. What does Paul tell us elsewhere? I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. That's profound. I can do all things, not just some things, all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Look at 38. If I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now it's spiritual situations which could come our way. Death, life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the physical realm can't touch you. The spiritual realm can't touch you. Once you're saved, you are saved. And I'd say this one last time before I conclude this message that if you want to rejoice in something, rejoice in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, your life will be rocky, verse 36. You may die, 36, but 37, 38, 39, and also from 35 makes it clear that nothing or no one, physical or spiritual, visible, uh, visible or invisible, temporary or eternal, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a great scripture. What a great hope that we have in Christ. And that's why it's good to get the balance right between preaching hell to the lost, to rejoicing in Christ, looking at heaven, concerning those of us which are saved today.